our scripture reading this morning is from Hebrews 11, verses 1 through 16. You can find this reading in your pew Bible on page 1007. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it the people of old received their commendation. For by faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts. And through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. By faith, Enoch was taken up, so that he should not see death, and he was not found, because God had taken him. Now before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out, not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive, even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man, and him as good as dead, were born descendants as many as the stars of heaven, and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of the land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we need to hear from you by your word. We believe in the Holy Spirit who has been given to us, sent by the Father and the Son as our helper and our teacher. And so we ask that by your Spirit you would enlighten us today. Help us to see and hear Christ. Use the preaching of the word to conform us who have believed even more into the image of Christ that you're restoring. I pray that those who are yet to believe in Christ would be given the grace to have saving faith in him today. And I pray that as we consider the faith of the saints of all the ages, that we who profess faith in Christ would endure in faith all the way to the end not pulling up short so that your soul has no pleasure in us. We pray these things through your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. I asked Sarah to marry me on November 30th, 2007, and uh, she said yes. A few weeks before I proposed, though, we were on a date in my sweet, sweet 1998 Ford Taurus, and I padded the center console and told Sarah, there's something in here that I'm planning on giving you in a few weeks. Now, I know some of you will think that's not very romantic and that it spoiled the surprise. She did, it didn't spoil the surprise. She kind of had an idea that I was planning on asking her to marry me, but Sarah had no sure knowledge that there was anything in that console. She didn't know 
that there was a ring in there for certain. And she didn't know when she was going to get that ring if there was one. She hadn't actually seen the ring. But she trusted me when I told her that there was a ring in a box in that console and that I intended someday soon to put it on her finger. She had faith in something she hadn't seen and couldn't see because she trusted the one who was making her a promise. Now, the audience of Hebrews is being exhorted in this section of the book to hold fast in a faith in something that's only been promised to them, not in something they've seen. But what sort of faith are the Hebrews being exhorted to remain in? We just heard our brother Hugh read more than once, by faith, by faith. Are they exhorted to to remain in faith, just sort of a generic, have faith in faith? Are the Hebrews just wanting to be people of faith generically, or is their faith specific? And is the object of their faith specific? And if it is, what or who is the object of their faith? And what does it look like when you have the kind of faith that the Hebrews are being exhorted to have and to keep on having? Well, those questions are relevant for you. Because the faith they're being called to persevere in is the faith you're to persevere in if you're going to have eternal life. So let's get into Hebrews 11 and get the answers to these questions. But first, I want to caution you to resist the urge to examine Hebrews 11 outside of the context of the rest of the book of Hebrews. Hebrews 11 doesn't exist in a vacuum. In fact, do you see how the end of chapter 10 serves as an on-ramp to chapter 11? Look with me at, the, uh, at Hebrews chapter 10, verse 37. This is where we were when we last were in Hebrews, the Sunday before Palm Sunday. Notice that the preacher of the sermon that is the book of Hebrews says in verse 37, yet, uh, for yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay, but my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith, and there's that word again, and preserve their souls. So he's telling the Hebrews to endure to the end in the faith in Christ that they have professed, and he tells them that if they shrink back from that faith, God will have no pleasure in them. He's confident, though, verse 39, that his audience is of those who have faith and preserve their souls. So faith in Christ is already on the table when we come to chapter 11. It's not a chapter that has nothing to do with what's already been going on in Hebrews. No. He's already been exhorting his audience to endure in faith. And now, in chapter 11, he's going to describe what enduring faith is. And he's going to remind them from their Old Testament what enduring faith looks like. But first, as I say, he describes enduring faith. Look with me at verse 1, and it may be helpful if you keep the sermon outline in hand as we go through. Look with me, chapter 11, verse 1. Those with faith, saving faith in Christ, that is, are assured of the things they're hoping for. That is, they're assured of the things God has promised. They're not just generically uh, hoping for things like nice weather and students' good final exam scores and with summer coming, a new boat. No, those with saving faith in Jesus are assured of the things they've hoped for, namely the things God has promised concerning eternal salvation through his Son, by his Spirit. And those with this faith, notice verse 1 again, have conviction, that is a deep-seated belief in the things they can't see. Let me say that again. Those with this faith have conviction in the things they can't see. Now why am I lingering on verse 1? It's because you have to get Hebrews 11.1 down, Pat, before we go on, because this is a specific faith that's being spoken of here. And it's the faith that every person mentioned in this chapter had. We're talking about saving faith 
in the Lord Jesus Christ, characterized by assurance of the things God has promised concerning salvation. And those things are things that those with saving faith are hoping for. They're promises in some instances yet to be fulfilled, which means that they are things not seen. But though they're not seen, they are things that those with saving faith nevertheless have conviction of, have surety of. Now notice verse 2. By this faith, the Old Testament saints were saved. This faith, this saving faith in Jesus Christ is the means by which the Old Testament saints were saved. That's what verse 2 means. Saving faith in Christ has always been the only means by which people received their commendation from God. The New American Standard Bible, which I know some of you use, has in verse 2, gained approval instead of received their commendation. And maybe that's clearer for you. They gained their approval by this faith. The point is that the only way people of any age have received a commendation from God, have gained God's approval, to put a sharper point on it, the only way anyone has ever been saved from their sins and been given eternal life is by faith in God's promises concerning his son. So by faith, the people of old, the writer of Hebrews says in verse 2, that is the people who were saved during the time of the old covenant. It's by faith that they received their commendation. Now, do you hear what isn't the means by which the people of old received their commendation? Offering sacrifices wasn't the means. Making sure you kept all the requirements of the law of Moses wasn't the means. The means was faith in God's promises concerning salvation through Jesus. Now, in the time of the Old Covenant, performing sacrifices and striving to keep the law of Moses given by God was the effect of having received God's commendation, but it wasn't the means. You mustn't get those two things confused. God has only ever commended. He's only ever saved sinners because of faith in his son, not by works, even though those works, obedience, are the necessary evidence that you possess the faith that has commended you to God. And the first example of faith in this chapter is a faith that the author and his readers all shared, a faith that united them to all the people that would come later in the chapter. It's the belief that the universe was created by the word of God. Do you see that in verse 3? By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God. That may seem a curious phrase to you initially, the universe created by the word of God, until you remember that seven times in Genesis chapter 1 we read, and God said, and God said, and God said, and when God said, stuff happened. And God said, and there was light. And God said, and there was land. And God said, and there was animals. And God said, and there was people. Creation came by means of the word of God with the result that all we see, what is visible, was not made out of things that are visible. Instead, as we see in verse 3, what is seen was made out of what is unseen, namely God. Do you see that relationship between the seen and the unseen that really holds this faith idea together here in Hebrews 11? Now, what is faith in the Bible's assertion that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth? What does that have to do with what's going on in Hebrews 11? Again, we're talking about faith in things unseen. No one saw God create the world by his word, identified in John chapter 1 as Jesus Christ. But by faith, we who have faith in Jesus likewise have faith that the universe was created by the word of God, the invisible creating the visible. Now, with that fundamental faith conviction Having been stated in verse 3, the author moves on, beginning in verse 4, to examples of saving faith in Christ in the people of old. And the first name mentioned is Abel. 
the son of Adam and Eve, which were the first people that God created by his word. In Genesis chapter 4, Abel offers to God a sacrifice of a sheep from his flock. And Cain, Abel's brother, offers to God an offering from his crop that he had grown. The Bible says that God accepted Abel's offering, but he did not accept Cain's. Now, don't think that it's because Abel offered an animal offering and Cain offered a grain offering. No. It's because, notice verse 4, Abel offered his offering with faith. Because Abel's offering was accompanied by faith, again, to put a sharp point on it, faith in Christ, Abel was commended. Do you see that? There's that word again from verse 2. He was commended as righteous. That is, because of Abel's faith in Christ, he was counted by God, reckoned by God, uh, commended by God as righteous. And we know God reckoned Abel as righteous by faith because God accepted Abel's gift, whereas God didn't accept Cain's gift, which made Cain so jealously angry, you'll recall, that he murdered his brother Abel. But dead Abel still speaks, doesn't he? How? We're talking about him this morning. His faith is still being commended and held up as exemplary to the Hebrews, and nearly 2,000 years later, to us. Now, you might be wondering how I can say that the faith that's exemplary about Abel is faith in Christ. How is it that Abel can be said to have faith in Christ? Now, to answer that question, I want to make sure you're listening very carefully. The faith that has ever saved any of God's people is faith in Christ. Now, Abel wouldn't have been able to say as much as you and I can about how God was going to go about saving his people through his son. But as much as God had revealed about his saving purposes through Jesus, that's what God required his people to believe in to be saved. So what did Abel know? Well, he at least knew the promise of Genesis chapter 3.15 that was spoken in his parents' hearing that the seed of the woman would come and crush the head of the serpent, the devil. That promise concerned Jesus' death on the cross and his resurrection. But God hadn't revealed all of that to Adam and Eve and Abel yet. God had only told them that one was coming who had crushed the head of the one who tempted Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, and all God had revealed about his saving purposes up to that point was all that God required Abel to have faith in. But make no mistake, the object of Abel's faith wasn't different from ours. He just knew at the time less about it than we do. Let me illustrate it in a way that's been very helpful to me. Imagine you come in here at midnight into this room and all the lights are off. There's no moonlight, no security lights or anything, pitch dark. You can't see anything. But because you were in scouts and you're always prepared, you've got a little box of matches on you. And you strike a tiny match. And now you can begin to see, though dimly from this little light, that there's actually some stuff in this room. And you slowly and carefully begin to make your way to the back of the room with your little match light and you find the light switches and you turn one on and you see more of what's in the room and you turn another one on and you see yet more of what's in the room. Finally, you throw on all the lights, all the room lights, all the platform lights and you can see clearly everything that's in here. This illustrates what I'm talking about. This room in my illustration and the things in it represent faith in Christ. And Abel could see only a little match light's worth of what was in the room. But God required that Abel have faith in as much as God had revealed. Now later people had more light. Noah, it seems, had more than Abel. Abraham, it seems, had more than Noah. Moses, yet more. David, yet more. Until the time of Christ's death and resurrection and his sending of the Holy Spirit, when heaven threw 
on the floodlights concerning God's saving purposes through his Son by his Spirit. Now what God had been saying all along about how he meant to save his people through his Son could be clearly seen. The room and all the stuff in the room was always there. It was always the same. It's just that for Abel and for these other Old Testament saints, the lights were kind of at varying degrees of dimness. But now, listen, now what God requires of those who would be saved is that we believe that he has a son named Jesus who he sent to die on the cross for our sins and that he raised Jesus from the dead because now God has revealed the whole thing from soup to nuts. Abel's faith was faith in Christ even though Abel couldn't have told you as much about the object of his faith as you can about the object of your faith. But it's the very same faith. Likewise with Enoch. Look in verse 5. In Genesis chapter 5, we get a quick mention of Enoch. Enoch walked with God after he fathered Methuselah 300 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Enoch walked with God and he was not for God took him. The Greek translation of the Old Testament called the Septuagint, that's the Old Testament that the Hebrews author would have used. That translation says that Enoch pleased God, which is what we have reflected here in verse 5. Enoch's faith in Christ pleased God. Enoch's faith in Christ caused Enoch to be commended by God. And as verse 6 tells us, it's impossible to please God without faith. Again, specifically faith in Christ. Enoch pleased God because Enoch had faith. Without faith, it's impossible to please God because if you're going to draw near to God, which is a phrase we've already seen several times in this book already, haven't we, to describe God's people having access to God through his Son. If you're going to draw near to God, you have to believe that he exists. That seems elementary. Which requires faith. Again, conviction of things not seen. And the faith that pleases God, notice verse 6, the faith that receives the commendation is a faith that's convinced that God rewards those who seek him. And so it doesn't stop seeking him before the end, before that reward. And that gets us to Noah, who once again possessed a faith in things hoped for, a faith in things unseen. God told Noah in Genesis 6 that he was going to destroy all those on earth with a flood that would cover the whole globe because of the Lord's disgust with the wickedness of mankind. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Genesis chapter 6 and verse 8 says, and so the Lord spared Noah and his wife and their sons and their wives, eight people, But Noah had faith in what God was saying, in what God was warning. So he crafted an ark in obedience to God. Noah had never before seen what God said was coming, but Noah had faith in God. Noah had faith to believe in what was unseen, yet promised by God. And this faith resulted in Noah becoming an heir of the righteousness that comes from faith, verse 7 says. It wasn't faith in the flood, though, that saved Noah. It was faith in Christ. It was faith that God, according to grace, was going to save Noah and his family through judgment. That faith resulted in Noah's commendation. It resulted in Noah's being reckoned righteous. How about Father Abraham, beginning in verse 8? You know, I just have to say, you know probably that Sarah and I have a little seven-month-old boy that we named Abraham, and our kids have been learning the song Father Abraham at Awana, but our two-year-old doesn't connect all of those dots, and he calls his brother Baby Abraham, so when our two-year-old goes around singing Father Abraham, he sings Father Baby Abraham had many sons. (laughs) He'll get those things connected before long. Father Abraham in verse 8, God told Abraham in Genesis 12 to Leave the land he lived in, the land in which Abraham was born and raised, 
the land where all of Abraham's kindred lived. He told him to leave that and to go to a place God was leading him, to a land that he would receive as an inheritance. And Abraham did that. Why? He had faith in what God was promising. And Abraham demonstrated that his faith was real by acting on that faith. Abraham went out. He didn't know where he was going. He lived in tents, as did his wife and their sons. And he was willing to live like that because of faith in God's promise of an eternal city with foundations whose designer and builder is God. Likewise with Abraham's wife, Sarah. We see her mentioned here in verse 11. Sarah had been promised by God that she and Abraham would have a son in their very old age, long past childbearing age. And Sarah considered him faithful who had made that promise. Now, encouragingly for us, we know from Genesis chapter 18 that Sarah's faith in God was not perfect. In fact, her son got the name Isaac because of laughter. But though her faith was imperfect, faith in God's promise that she, a woman in her 90s, should bear a son... The faith was present, and she indeed bore a son. And from the birth of that promised son, Isaac, born to a father over a hundred years old, as good as dead, at least where having children is concerned, Isaac was the first of a number of descendants, as many as the stars of heaven, as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. Abraham and Sarah had faith in what they couldn't see, in a land they couldn't see, And in a son they couldn't see, faith that through their son, and ultimately through the true son of Abraham, the Lord Jesus Christ, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. Now, you'll see in the outline that I'm calling verses 13 through 16 an interlude. In these verses, the writer pauses to make a comment on the examples of enduring, saving faith that we've seen so far. He reminds us at the beginning of verse 13 that these all died in faith, which means a couple of things. One, they died in faith, meaning they endured in faith to the end of their lives. They didn't fall back or turn away as the Hebrews are being tempted to do. But two, they didn't receive the things promised yet. They saw the things promised, forgiveness of sins at Christ's first advent and resurrection from the dead, eternal life with Christ at his second advent to whatever degree God had revealed those things to them. They saw those things promised. They greeted them from afar, the Hebrews writer says. They believed in things that were unseen to them. They believed in those unseen things in a way that changed how they lived their lives. And they believed in those unseen promises of God until the end. And they lived with an acknowledgement that they were but strangers and exiles on the earth that they were pilgrims. They lived with an awareness that they weren't home, that they didn't fully belong here. And that acknowledgement caused them to live lives that reflected that they were clear that they were seeking a homeland. If Abraham, for example, had been obsessed with the land that he had come from, he could have gone back there though to do so would have been as falling away from faith in Christ, just as these Hebrews are being tempted to go back to where they came from, an old covenant faith. But as it is, Abel and Enoch and Noah and Abraham and Sarah, they desired a better country, that is, a heavenly one, verse 16 says. They were resolved to have faith in God's promised salvation through Christ and the eternal life with him in the world to come that was their promised reward. They believed God's as yet unseen promises. They had enduring faith so that God was not ashamed to be called their God because he was preparing for them exactly the city they were looking toward and seeking. Let's pick up the reading at verse 17. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. By faith, Isaac invoked future blessings on Jacob and Esau. By faith, Jacob, when dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. 
By faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave directions concerning his bones. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful and they were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproaches of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. By faith he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. By faith he kept the Passover and sprinkled the blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch them. By faith the people crossed the Red Sea as on dry land, but the Egyptians, when they attempted to do the same, were drowned. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. By faith, Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. And what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy. Wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. And all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised. Since God has provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. After the interlude of verses 13 to 16, we pick back up with Father Abraham, whose faith in God's promise was displayed in Genesis chapter 22. One of the episodes I talked about last Sunday on Easter Sunday is one of the places in the Old Testament where Christ's death and three-day resurrection is foretold. In that narrative, Abraham demonstrated faith that God's promise to Abraham would come to pass even when God told Abraham to sacrifice the son of promise, Isaac. If it took it to keep his promise, Abraham had faith that God would even raise Isaac from the dead. As God did, figuratively speaking, by stopping Abraham from killing Isaac in sacrifice and in obedience to God. Isaac, verse 20 says, had the faith of his father and demonstrated it when he spoke blessings on his sons, Jacob and Esau. But as we know from the Old Testament and in places like Romans 9 and even the next chapter of Hebrews, Hebrews 12, Esau didn't have the faith of Abraham and Isaac. But Jacob did, and Jacob's mentioned next. As Jacob was dying, he blessed his favorite son, Joseph's two sons. We read that in Genesis 48. Joseph likewise had faith in Christ, manifested in faith that God would rescue Israel from slavery in Egypt, that rescue that so vividly foretells the cross and the resurrection, as we said on Palm Sunday. In fact, so sure was Joseph in God's as yet unseen promise that he gave instructions on how to carry his bones out of Egypt centuries before Israel would leave Egypt in the Passover and the Exodus. Moses, verse 23, had faith in Christ. Faith in God's unseen promises concerning salvation in God's Son. Faith that was evidenced by his willingness to be mistreated by the Egyptians along with his fellow Hebrews, then to enjoy the luxurious life offered him as the adopted son of Pharaoh's daughter. The author of Hebrews says, fascinatingly, that Moses' decision to endure the suffering that came with identifying with the people of God in view of the reward to come was a type of the suffering that Christ endured. 
Christ endured the suffering that came from obeying God because Christ was looking to the reward that awaited him after the suffering. We're going to see that in Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 2 next week. And so with saving faith, Moses left Egypt, not fearing Pharaoh's anger, the anger of the one Moses could see, but rather enduring in faith and fearing the God who Moses could not see. And by that same faith, Moses obeyed God's commands concerning the Passover, killing the Passover lamb, telling Israel to sprinkle the blood of the lamb on their doorposts and lentils so that the plague of death of the firstborn would pass over them. By faith, Israel crossed the Red Sea as on dry land, believing that God would get them safely across. Now we know that the vast majority of those Israelites who by faith crossed the Red Sea didn't endure in faith. It's those Israelites we keep coming back to over and over again in this book, don't we, as an example of what not to do. They fell away but they demonstrated an appearance of faith in God's salvation through judgment, seen most clearly at the cross, when they walked through the Red Sea on dry ground and watched as the Lord drowned the Egyptians when they tried to do the same. The generation after those who escaped from Egypt saw the Lord fell the walls of Jericho, not by the active destruction of an army, but by the sounding of horns and the shout of the congregation of Israel, which blared their horns and unleashed their cries by faith in the command God gave Joshua. And the prostitute, Rahab, who lived in Jericho and who had given quarter to the faithful Israelite spies, was spared in Jericho's destruction. Do you see verse 31? Because of her faith in God's promise to lead his people into the promised land through Joshua, and faith in God's promise to lead his people into the true promised land through the greater Joshua, the Lord Jesus Christ. She preferred to be identified with the foreign Hebrews than with the people of her city because God had given her grace to place her hope not in the city that she could see, but in the city she couldn't see the city yet to come, a city with foundations whose maker and builder is God. Then in verses 32 to 38, Hebrews 11 adopts the feel of the end of a symphony when the volume increases and the tempo speeds up. We've been talking about individual stories, and now the writer just piles on references to those who demonstrated enduring faith in Christ in the Old Testament. Gideon, who destroyed places where false gods were worshipped and through whom the Lord miraculously delivered Israel from the hand of all their enemies on every side. We see that in Judges 6 through 8. Barak, through whom the Lord delivered Israel from Jabin, king of Canaan, Judges 4 through 5. Samson, at whose death thousands of the pagan Philistines were killed. Jephthah, through whom the Lord conquered the pagan Ammonites. Samuel, who anointed Israel's first king, Saul, and Israel's greatest warrior king, David. David's mention, through whom the Lord conquered all of Israel's enemies all around. And none of the folks mentioned by name in verse 32 have unblemished track records, and that's, to put it mildly, They weren't perfect, and their faith wasn't without failures, but the object of their faith was perfect. In some cases, like Samson, you could wonder, did the writer to the Hebrews get confused about Samson? Did he switch him with someone else? No. But because of their faith, through these men, the Lord, notice verse 33, conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises. The reference to the prophets at the end of verse 32 comes to mind when the author references stopping the mouths of lion. You think of the book of Daniel. Quenching the power of fire. You think once again of the book of Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Lots of people and events could be the reference of escaping the edge of the sword, being made strong out of weakness, becoming mighty in war, putting foreign armies to flight. The prophets Elijah and Elisha are in view in verse 35. 
God used them to raise the widow of Zarephath's son in 1 Kings 17 and the Shunammite woman's son in 2 Kings 4. But notice that enduring faith wasn't present only in triumph. The writer calls to his audience's mind, beginning in the second half of verse 35, that the saints of old endured in faith even amid torture, refusing to compromise in order to be released because of their faith in the as yet unseen life to come, the better life to which they had faith that they would rise. Others endured in faith in Christ amid flogging, mocking, chains, imprisonment. The Old Testament recounts some of these things happening to the faithful prophets. Others endured in faith in the face of stoning as happened to the prophet Zechariah in 2 Chronicles 24. Who's this one sawn in two? Jewish tradition holds that Isaiah died by being sawn in two. Other prophets were killed by godless Israelites, 1 Kings 19 tells us. They didn't enjoy the best life this world had to offer. They went around in clothing of the poor. They were destitute. They were afflicted. They were mistreated. They were faithful people of whom this wicked world was not worthy. And to escape mistreatment and death sometimes meant living in the wilderness, as Elijah and Elisha sometimes did. It sometimes meant hiding and living in dens and caves as David sometimes did. And all that stuff comes with realizing by faith that you're a stranger and an exile. And as it turns out, all that stuff helps you desire a better country. That is a heavenly one. Notice verse 39. All the folks mentioned from verse 4 onward were commended by God. Do you see that word again from back in verse 2? They gained God's approval because of their faith. But the object of their faith, eternal resurrection life with Christ, wasn't realized in their lifetime. They died having not received yet what God had promised to them. Now, they were assured of what was promised. They had rock-ribbed conviction that God would keep his saving promises to them, which is why they didn't let go of their faith before the end, even amid suffering. But they didn't gain the fulfillment of the promise. No, in fact, do you see verse 40? With Christ's first advent having taken place by the time of the writing of the book of Hebrews, God has provided something better for these folks and for us. We now know what the room looks like with all the lights on. We now know fully what God was promising to all these saints. We know from the New Testament that what God was promising was a son, the Messiah, who would be born of a virgin, who would live an absolutely perfect life of unblemished obedience and righteousness, totally without sin, and who for the forgiveness of the sins of all of his people would die as the sacrificial lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, bearing God's righteous and furious anger toward his people for our wickedness and rebellion against him, and who would be victoriously resurrected three days later, ascending to heaven, being enthroned at the Father's right hand, bringing us with him and in him into the heavenly holy of holies, interceding for us to the Father. God has provided something better for us in giving us the privilege of living in the stage of redemptive history when we know how God has saved his people and we know what it is that we're yet looking for. We're looking for Christ's return. And when he returns, he's going to raise us And he's going to raise all these saints in Hebrews 11. And our salvation will be completed and we'll all have been made perfect together because we all will finally have turned to sight the same faith that all God's people have always had. Enduring faith in his son's death and resurrection for the forgiveness of sins and the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting will be perfected right alongside these saints. We are awaiting the same promise that they were awaiting. Now, how can we, brother and sister, apply Hebrews 11 to our lives? First, I want to ask you, have you decided to live at camp? That is, 
Have you decided that you're going to set up your life at the place where you're only supposed to stay for a little while? These saints had faith that resulted in their acknowledging that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. And when you live like you understand you're a stranger and an exile, we see from Hebrews 11, you make it clear that you're seeking a homeland and you live with a desire for a better country that is a heavenly one. And so I ask you, have you set up home at the campsite? Are you making decisions that reflect that you think this world is where you belong? How can you tell? Well, do you spend your money in a way that reflects that you're a stranger and an exile here? Or do you spend your money to make your life as comfortable and as easy as it can be here? Strangers and exiles spend and give and even save, reflecting that they're clear that this isn't home, but that home is that city yet to come with foundations whose designer and builder is God. And when you don't live like a stranger in exile, this is the place you financially invest in. This is the place you get twisted up when it doesn't go your way. When you live like a stranger in an exile, that is the place that you financially invest in through generosity to the church and to kingdom initiatives. Let me ask you, young people, what grid do you run your decisions through? What grid do you run decisions through based on who you're going to date and who you're going to marry? Talking about young people with professions of faith in Christ, where you'll go to college, what career you want, where you'll work, both in regard to the company and in regard even to the state where you'll live. Do you make all those decisions based on largely the same criteria that the lost world uses? Criteria used by those for whom this world is home, who aren't strangers and exiles here? Or do you make those decisions with eternity in mind? Do you make those decisions based on prioritizing the eternal family of God who's all looking for the same promise, who all has the same faith and the same as yet unseen promises? Older people, how do you think about retirement years? Those of you who are years from retirement or those of you for whom retirement is right on the doorstep, even those of you who are already in retirement, do you think about all those things like the lost world thinks about them? Do you think about retirement, what you'll do, and how you'll spend money and where you'll go? the way that people do who aren't strangers and exiles here? Or do your retirement thoughts largely center on doing all you can to ensure that you'll just coast to the funeral home on Easy Street? I'd rather you thought about retirement with clarity that this isn't home. It's just where your tent is. Do you, like these saints we've been considering today, think about your time and your money in the context of eternal things, not primarily in the context of this world and its priorities? And Christians, young and old, do you see the common denominator in Hebrews 11 and what unites this chapter to the rest of the book? These, the saving faith that these saints lived with resulted in their being willing to endure in faith amid suffering. Moses could have decided not to identify with the Hebrews and keep right on living in Pharaoh's palace, but he didn't. At the cost of enormous comfort, at the cost of enormous ease, he rather identified with the people of God, which the scriptures have shown us is ultimately God's people, the church in Christ. Abraham could have stayed in his homeland. The prophets could have decided not to say the kind of stuff that gets you sawn in two or stoned or killed with the sword. But when you're clear that this life here isn't the life that you're most interested in and that's most important and that this life here isn't the life you were created for, then you begin to make decisions that reflect that your priority is on the life to come. 
you begin to make decisions that reflect that your priority is to prefer to be identified with others whose priority is not here, but is on the life to come. Secondly, Christian, to apply this message, I want to exhort you to endure in faith in the unseen God and in his as yet unseen promises. The end of Hebrews chapter 10 is still on my mind where the writer quotes from Habakkuk chapter 2. I think of what the Lord spoke to the prophet Habakkuk concerning the vision that God gave Habakkuk of the invading Babylonians who would conquer Judah. The Lord said to Habakkuk, if it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. Right now, the Lord requires that you have a faith in God who you cannot see and whose return you don't know the date of, no matter what anyone says. Right now, the Lord requires that you have assurance of things that you only hope for. And he requires that you have conviction of things that right now you cannot see. But the faith that God requires has always been that way. Haven't we seen that from Hebrews 11? The faith that commends a person to God has always required firm, unwavering belief in God's promises. And we have more to go on than the saints of old. We already have the first huge installment of the promise to save his people. It's already come to pass in the first advent of his son and in his death and resurrection. If God has already made good on that huge installment of his promise, why shouldn't we then endure in faith in Christ all the more as we eagerly await his second advent when faith will eternally give way to sight? So don't let up, dear believer. Don't let up. When it seems easier to disbelieve than to believe because of the consequences and the cost for following Christ, when it seems easier to let up than to persevere, ask God for the grace to endure in faith in Christ all the way to the end, living with complete assurance that his son is going to return for his bride. And when he does, he's going to raise us up from the grave right along with Abel and Noah, and Enoch, Father Abraham, and all the rest in resurrection bodies like Christ's own in which we'll dwell eternally with him in the city that we were made for where we won't be pitching any more tents, the city with foundations whose designer and builder is God. Without that faith, without enduring, saving faith in Christ, it is impossible to please God. So hold on to that faith all the way to the finish line. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for so glorious an object of faith as is your magnificent Son, We thank you for the grace you've given us to believe in the first place. It's all of grace that we have any faith. And we pray for grace to have faith to the end. Would you do it among us, Father, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.